0: We are in part nine of our Faithful High Priest series through the book of Hebrews, and I entitled this morning's message, A Better Relationship. And I just want to begin with a couple thoughts. We tend to say out loud what we are thinking about the idea that we wish things were different in life. We wish that people didn't pass away, we wish that relationships didn't fade, we wish that We didn't always grow older the way that we do. We wish that God would just show himself to everyone and make everything easier. We wish there were more miracles. We wish that all our prayers were answered. But what we're really doing is we're wishing for heaven. And heaven's not here yet. We are all getting there, but we are not there yet. Therefore, what is going on right here, right now, is that we are learning to engage with God... In this environment, learning and understanding how he deals with human nature in our weakness. uh, What it is to be disciplined, what it is to wrestle against sin, what it is to suffer, what it is to grow, uh, what it is to see loss and how we get healed. And if you think about it, if sin is removed, as it will be in heaven, if indeed pain is gone, how would you know that God is a healer? I mean, you just have to think about that because that actually doesn't have a function if there is no pain. So if as right now in this life, though it is short and we're moving on to the greater and eternity is the peaceful place. There are some things that we will learn here different than we will learn there. However, there are also things that we seem to. Maybe complain about or wish in our heads that are absolutely absurd um, I remember early on in my christian life. I said this phrase So i'm not necessarily blaming you i'm kind of blaming me But there are some of us that when we read the bible we actually say I wish it was more like the old testament Because in the old testament that's when cool stuff happened um, think about it this way it was I mean, that was when God came to people and said, I want you to build a boat and here are the dimensions and there's going to be a worldwide flood and, and it's going to be crazy. And, and, uh, it was the Old Testament where Elijah was able to put one altar there and one altar here and says, I will pray to God and whatever God answers by fire. You remember that whole story? That's a cool story. Fire comes screaming out of the sky, blows up one of the sacrifices and, and Elijah's fed by ravens by the brook, and Daniel's in the lion's den, and and the Hebrew boys are walking through fire, and and you know, all these stories, and we just go, man, I, you know, 140,000 Assyrians slaughtered by an angel, and we just kind of go, it would be so cool if it was more like the Old Testament, where. Just dramatic stuff happened, and it seems so obvious that you could say right there on Mount Sinai, that's where God is. Moses is going there right now to go meet with God, and I can tell you he's on the mountain. The reason why that is so absolutely ridiculous is because what we have now is so much greater. Because here's the truth. The books in the Bible include stories that are weird that's why they're there in other words Daniel was protected in the lion's den but what about the millions of others who were not what about all those that did not walk through fire what Noah got to do only seven people remembered outside of him everyone else is dead we could go through, not everybody was Elijah, all the other prophets, they weren't doing the dramatic miracles. And if you remember the story of saying that God was on Mount Sinai, do you also remember that they put a fencing around the mountain that no one could get near it. Why? Because they would die. Yesterday, uh, as I was preparing for this message, I was trying to get my head in the game and, and kind of clear out my thoughts, and so I, was, I put on my app, uh, phone app on my iPhone, the, the Bible one, and you know, it can read out loud to you. Everybody have that, that function on your phone. Um, I clicked that and it's, and I was trying to listen to it and I did what I teach you not to do. I, I (laughs) I did scripture diving. Everybody know what scripture diving is. All right. Don't do that. Okay. I'm going to do that. Um what's cool on the iPhone is that I was in the car not supposed to be doing this and I was spinning I'd spin through it because it lets you scan through all the books and I wasn't looking I was like la 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 and I'd pick one and then I picked a random chapter and then I said all right start at verse 1 and then I would play that and what it was was in numbers and it happened to talk about the priesthood and the Levites. I was like, man, I mean, we're right in there in Hebrews. That's kind of weird, but whatever. And it started talking about how only Aaron and the priests were ever allowed to touch the holy stuff. Everyone else dies. Now that's not exactly your favorite devotional that you're going to do for the day. Well, that was a nice food for thought, right? That's not in our daily bread. Okay. (laughs) However, I'm reading that, and it was really driving home this concept that in the Old Testament, God was removed. I mean, we look and we say, well, that's cool. Well, it was only cool for a select few. Everyone else was on the outside. You did not just get to engage with God the way you wanted. You did not just get to walk into the tabernacle and hang out there with God. Only a few people could do that. Everyone else was kept away. There was a massive organized hierarchy with mediators and priests that would talk to God on your behalf. You don't do that. They do that. We don't want it to be like the Old Testament. The fill in the blank in front of you on your sheet is this. The indwelling spirit is better than a distant deity. The indwelling spirit is better than a distant deity. I have taught over and over and over in this church about how mind-blowing Pentecost was to the Jewish people. After thousands of years of having it baked into their minds and hearts that you do not approach God lest you die. That there in Acts chapter 2, because of what Jesus did on the cross, the Holy Spirit goes global And enters into the hearts of man how is that even possible how does the infinite perfect great and mighty God dwell within sinful messed up people that whole concept was not something that the Jewish people could get their minds wrapped around all of a sudden God is imminently near and he dwells within, it's the same word, it says, and he tabernacles in our heart. The same word for where he used to be in that tent, he now dwells with us as we move through life. That's extraordinary. And unfortunately, a lot of us take that for granted. We have this whole idea, because we grew up with it, some of us, that you could just ask Jesus into your heart, and that's a neat little thing to do. Well, let me ask you this. First of all, let me... Let me publicly get you on my team and bust you out loud how many of you uh by show of hands how many of you engaged with the lord significantly before the age of 10 raise your hand all right a good amount of you that was my experience you have grown up in a world where god is near you don't know this concept about being a part. You don't know this idea of, I don't feel like if I pray that God will hear me. That's not even in your vocabulary. We take it for granted. Those of us that raised our hands, we of all people tend to take it for granted what it means to have an indwelling God. We forget things like this. We are with God, not against God. Now, there are some people in this room, perhaps the majority, that you do have active memories right now when you did not feel next to God. You have that vibrant in your head. So you know what it's like to not and you know what it is like many of you to have. Others of us take that for granted. We always assume that we're friends with God. We always assume that everything's cool. We always assume that, hey, you know what? He's on my side. I'm on his side. That's great. But that's not always how it is. I think that we also take for granted the idea that when we pray, God hears us. Do you understand that not everybody is a child of God in the same way? Do you understand that God does not hear the prayers of everyone in the same way? The Bible says that his ears are attentive to his children. There are times when he says, I will not listen to the wicked, that he will shut them out. When you have an indwelling God, when you have the Lord in your life, when you have the Holy Spirit within your heart, you know that he hears every prayer you pray, whether you feel like it's going above the ceiling or not. God always answers the prayer of his children. Yes, no, or wait. Right? There's always answers to that. He is always engaging with his kids. But we take it for granted that you can just talk to God off the cuff. You can be driving down the road and just start talking to him without a big long intro. We are in this world and we're taking it for granted, but it's a great deal. If you have Jesus in your life, you may be taking it for granted that you live in a worldview that says your future will be greater than your present. You have indwelling hope at all times that things are going to get better. How do we know that? Because we believe in a concept called heaven. Things may be horrible, messed up, dismal, And could be full of despair, but for the believer, despair actually has no hold because when we transition from here to there, we go up, not down. And in doing so, that allows us to walk around with a certain amount of hopefulness within our spirit, within our bones, that things actually get better, not worse. And we may be taking that for granted. Listen, as I look through all these different things, I realize how much I take for granted. I forget that the presence of the Holy Spirit within me means that there is an active power that is rooting out garbage even when I'm not paying attention. That the Holy Spirit is working to blow things up in my life, convict areas, love and encourage other areas, woo towards change, and is actively morphing me into the image of the Son of God. That's a big deal. Do we want it like the Old Testament? I don't think so. I think that what we have is pretty stunning. Amen. All right. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter eight. As we dive into this, we're going to cover the the whole chapter. It's not shockingly new information. A lot of it we have touched on before. However, the author is going to recap and kind of hit his main point. And he almost sounds like he's wrapping up and summing up But like any good pastor. He's lying. Because you know that it doesn't only have eight chapters. There's more chapters after that, so don't believe him. Now, in our passage, what we've been hearing over and over, and keep this in your mind, that the author is talking to Jewish people that are thinking about bailing out on the Christian thing and going back to Judaism. He's saying you cannot do that. Jesus is everything you need. Jesus is everything you could possibly dream of because he is greater than than any other way there is no other way to heaven by which you could be saved other than jesus christ and he keeps laying this foundation over and over and over so here he's trying to say let me just hit the main point and we can move on is really what he's saying all right so let's read through chapter eight we'll pray for the word and then we'll go back and tear it apart verse by verse all right here we go now the point in what we are saying is this We have such a high priest one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the lord set up not man For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been an occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, quote, He makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning is of eternal importance, and I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would fall on us today in conviction, encouragement, healing, love and illumination of scripture may you be glorified in this place and in us in jesus name we pray amen all right so let's go back to verse one and let's take a look at what it says he said now the point in which we are saying is this hey let me sum it up let me give you the main point we have such a high priest We have what we've been looking for. We have the new one who is able to do all that we need. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, anytime you ever hear the phrase, the majesty in heaven, as if it's a thing or a person, it's referring to God. The majesty in heaven, the king in heaven, let's refer to him as the father. Jesus Christ is near him. Where is he seated? at the right hand. Why is that significant? Because the right hand is the place of power and authority of the right hand of God. And he's not standing, but he's sitting. Why is that important? Because you sit down when you finish what you're doing. When he died on the cross, his last words were, it is finished. He is not still working out our salvation. He's not still, hey, I'm getting to it. I'm getting on it. So I'll get it done in a little bit. It was completed once and for all on the cross. And all that we needed to have done is done. So he sat down. That's why he's pictured as seated. Yeah. All right. Pretty obvious. It says he is verse two, a minister in the holy places. I mean, holy places, plural. What does that mean? means the realm of God. We refer to it as heaven, but that's a bit misleading because the Bible uses the word heaven or heavens for many different things. So we're trying to talk about where God lives. Jesus is a priest that ministers in the very presence of God. It says, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. All right, he just dropped the word that we're not familiar with that is tent. You go I know what a tent is, I camp in it. Okay, different tent. He is ministering in a tent that the Lord made, not man made. What's he referring to? Well, think about it this way, very practical. God contacts Moses, says, "Hey, we're going to hang out. I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to download info to you to get to my people. You're going to lead Israel. Therefore, we need to have some meetings." You are nomadic people, I'm having you move around the desert, so we can't always meet here in my office at Mount Sinai. So if we're going to meet together, where are we going to do that? Are we always going to go, hey, meet me over by that bush over there, right? What are we going to do? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to set up a tent, right? Tents are easy to break down and move. I want you to set up a tent that's just you and me. It's our special date place. They call that the tent of meeting pretty logical. Yeah. Hey, it's good. If it's a place where we're going to meet and it's a tent, let's call it the tent of meeting. They met in the tent of meeting and literally you could see the presence of God descend from above and like smoke or cloud descend down onto the tent and he would meet with Moses and they would talk. Well, that's very cool. Now, eventually it got a bit more formalized because now we're going to involve priests into this issue. So they ended up, God said, I would like a little fancier tent. And they built one that had a bunch of stuff in it. In a few weeks, I'm going to demonstrate exactly what that looks like to you. But it's like an altar of incense. And there was a table where there was bread on it. And there was a a menorah type candlestick and, and it had tent uh, curtain coverings on the outside. That was where the ark of the covenant was remember all that that fancy one was called the tabernacle so it went tent of meaning little fancier tabernacle then when they eventually got into a land and they weren't being nomadic and moving around anymore they made it permanent called the temple yeah so that's how it basically transitioned through the days so right here the author just says where jesus ministers is in the legitimate super powerful tent of the heavens not some earthly thing that God had man build. Make sense? All right, go back to it. Verse 3. For every high priest here on earth, by definition, is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. In other words, if you're a priest, your job is to connect God and man. How are you going to do that? By offering gifts and sacrifices. That's your job. All right. Therefore, it is necessary for this priest... Jesus, who we're calling a priest, but if he's going to be called a priest, he needs to do priestly functions. Hey, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer in order to be designated a priest. But as a side note, verse four, he says, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. Not only is he the wrong tribe, he's Judah, supposed to be Levi, but they offered it according to the old covenant. And that's not Jesus's style. Jesus was here to bring about the new covenant. So he wouldn't be an old school priest at all. It says, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. But they, the earthly priests, serve a what? A copy and shadow of the heavenly things. All right, right there, he dropped two words that his readers would go, ooh, we don't really care. Type and shadow were two Greek terms that everybody knew Why because Greek thinking at this time in the world was massive Especially in the Roman Empire The Greeks heavily influenced the Romans. So let me ask you this. We're gonna take a quiz if I said Who are the top Greek thinkers in all of history? I bet you anything everyone can only name two How do I know that because I can only name two? Uh, I'm going to give you the least likely one, and that's Aristotle, all right? Everybody familiar with Aristotle? All right, so who's the most popular one? Plato, all right. Plato's concept that he came up with was this idea. What he said was, everything here in this world is but a type or a form or a shadow of what is real somewhere else. There is another reality where everything is legitimate. We only see copies. So, for example, if you have a doggie, the doggy is not the real dog. It's just a sampling of what a dog could be. That was his concept. Now, whether you like it or not, doesn't matter. The whole world thought he was brilliant. And they all went, oh, my gosh. Okay, so this author grabbed what they knew in their culture he's not saying whether it's right or wrong but every great teacher grabs what people know and then he takes them somewhere from that so he drops plato's words they all go wow and he says do you realize that jesus is in the real he's in that other world where all these priests are playing games because they're only working with the types copies shadows make sense all right that's what he said now he said, for when Moses was about to erect that tent of meeting, he was instructed by God in Exodus 25:40 and said, quote, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. What's that mean? It means don't mess with my stuff. I'm giving you a very clear directive on how to build my tent. You don't just get to go. What would really look cool here is a landscape painting. I don't care about your landscape painting. No, you're not going to add on another wing. Okay. You're going to do exactly what I told you to do to a T. Why? Because I'm trying to draw a picture of something powerful in concept. And if you start altering it and messing with it, you're going to ruin my point. So don't do that. So Moses had to make it exactly. But the whole point that God gave him a blueprint, God was trying to draw from the real and give an example here on earth. Make sense. All right. Every time I say that, I'm not even looking at you. Does that make sense? Nobody even nods. Okay. And I just keep talking anyway. So it really doesn't matter, does it? Okay. <laughs> Verse 6. But as it is, if I waited for you to acknowledge me, we would be here all day long. Verse 6. You know, I dream. I'm just. These are all side notes. You know, I... I dream of a day when we will actually allow people to say the word amen (laughs) in the middle of uh, amen. Thank you very much. All right. Fantastic. My dream was just realized. All right, here we go. (laughs) All I had to do was ask. Verse six. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. (laughs) And here we go. Verse six. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry by what he accomplished on the cross that is as much more excellent than the old. It's effective as much more excellent as the covenant that he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. All he's saying simply is this. Of course, Jesus' way is better. It's the Son of God. It doesn't just sweep sin under the rug. It vacuums under the rug. It cleans everything up. It is effective and good. And it's promised that it's not going to change from here on out. That's all he said. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Hey, if this old way that you all want to go back to was legit... Jesus wouldn't have had to change it, huh? All right, so a real quick side note on the issue of covenant. There's a really smart guy that writes a commentary. His name is William Barclay, right? He's way smarter than me. And he came up with this idea that I thought was really intriguing. He said, did you notice that in Greek, the word for covenant is not the normal Greek word that you should use? Because there was a word in Greek that you would use for marriage covenant. For contracts between business partners. That's always the same word. But that's not the word he uses here. He uses the word for contract that is only used of things like wills. Why would he do that? And so he begins to speculate. Think about it this way. Here's why he thinks so. And he's probably right. In a marriage covenant... It's two people on same terms, same equality, coming together and sorting out the terms of the deal in a business partnership. If you and I establish a new corporation, we're going to negotiate how that contract works. But in a will, there is no negotiation. Does that make sense? It's one sided. It is a this is how it's going to go. Either you're eligible or you're not. If you're eligible to receive, then I will hand down what you are supposed to receive. I'm not going to argue with you about it. I'm not going to debate with you about it. This is my stuff, and I'm going to point out exactly how it's going to be done without any discussion. That's this word. In Hebrews, every time God and his covenant is referred to, it is talking about a one-sided deal where God says, I'm not discussing this with you. We're not going to get into hey, you know what, I will totally do this salvation thing. If you allow me like 40% share in deciding what we're going to do. Jesus is like, forget you. No, I'm not arguing with you. Either you're in or you're not. Either you're going to follow my covenant or you're not. That's it. We're not going to sit there and dialogue about it because you don't know what you're talking about. So he uses a different word. Here's another thing that I thought was interesting. In some ways, the whole idea that Plato came up with is intriguing because everything in our world tends to reflect something about God. And it's very embarrassing that a lot of us live lives without looking around. We just drive to our next thing. We're always on the move. We don't even reflect on what God's trying to say. For example... We don't even allow him to teach us. Let's say he blows up something in our life to make a point. And we go, wow, that was unfortunate. And we just go on ignorantly. Boom, he blows it up again to get our opinion. Man, I'm having a bad string of luck. No, I'm blowing up your life. And I'm trying to get your attention. You're not looking at me. And then he has a bunch of things around us reflecting on what God is like. Think about how Jesus was when he walked through this earth and how cool would it be to have been one of his followers you get to walk while the rabbi and the rabbi constantly is going hey see that mustard plant check it out come here bring me some of those seeds see how little they are if you had faith like this and all of a sudden he starts telling stories and then he's like see that mountain that was moved over there you could even move something like that see how herod moved that mountain you could do that with faith like this and then he starts going on and, and he's using all this stuff around to say the kingdom of God is like that, like that, like that, like that, like that. And yet most of us walk through life, not even paying attention. That's embarrassing because I would venture to say that through God's word, through God's revelation around us, God is constantly talking to us 24 hours a day. And yet our number one challenge to him is why are you so quiet? How weird is that? Hmm. pick it up in verse eight speaking about this old covenant the reason why it didn't exactly work was because they didn't adhere to the contract it says for he finds fault with them israel when he says and then he quotes jeremiah 31 31 through 34 totally says the whole thing and here's what he says behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will establish a new covenant With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. What does that mean? Well, first of all, that's powerful. Here's why. Anybody read Jeremiah? It's totally depressing. Um, It's one of the books in the Bible that you kind of go, hmm, I'll pass. Right? You just kind of move on. Okay. Jeremiah ministered during a very critical juncture in Israel's history. Let me bring you to speed. Remember, the very first king of Israel, his name was Saul. We studied that together last year. Saul, the second king, was the greatest king. His name was David. And then his son's name was Solomon. After Solomon, the nation split in two, north and south. The north was known as Israel. The south was known as Judah. Now, when they were split in two, God would refer to them as their two names. He'd say Israel and Judah. That's why you're hearing that. The north and south actually interacted independent of one another, and they treated God differently. The north were greater losers than the south. And here's what happened. God said, you know what? You violated my covenant, and I'm wiping you out of the promised land. In 722 BC, he allowed the Assyrian Empire to come in and obliterate them. The south hung in there for a while. They actually listened to God, and they did what he wanted for a little longer. But in 586 BC, he said, you're done too. And the Babylonian Empire came in and took out the south. Jeremiah ministered as a prophet around 586 BC. In other words, he's transition guy. He is, oh my gosh, we're getting taken over by the Babylonians guy. And everyone's going to go, well, that's a bad string of luck. And his whole point in his book is it wasn't luck at all. God's trying to tell you something. You're getting knocked out of your land. We are all getting wiped out because we're not living for him. And I don't want anyone guessing anything else. God has been very clear. We are wrong here. And this is discipline judgment upon us. Right? That's why the book is there. So what's so intriguing about this is look at what he says in that dark time. Right before they're about to get wiped out. What does he say? He said, Behold, the days are coming when I'm going to establish a new covenant with you. Right at the darkest time, he fires out with this message of hope. I understand we're getting wiped out. I understand we failed. But you know what? God's going to come back in with a better plan. He is not leaving us alone. He is not abandoning us. He is not done with us. God still has work for us to do. He is still going to work with the nation of Israel. The days are coming. What days are those? The days of the Messiah. Who do we know the Messiah to be? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I will establish a new covenant, not like the old one. But why does he say, I'm going to establish the new covenant with Israel and Judah? Isn't, aren't we under the new covenant? What about the church of modern day? Why doesn't he mention Bridgeway? <laughs> right? Because we're under that covenant. Here's why. Because the rule is always this. First to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. You have to understand that and memorize that. Why? Because it helps clarify the way the Bible talks. Do you understand this? And it's a very simple concept that I've said before. The Jews were placed here on the earth to be the salt and light of the world. Their whole job was to tell the whole world what God is like. That was their job. When they ultimately screwed up on that, and the Messiah shows up, and they're like, nah, you're not him. He said, All right, hold up. I'm blowing this whole thing wide open. I'm going to embarrass you guys. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm involving the Gentiles. And the Jews are like, No! Those people are stupid. And he's like, I know. That's why it's embarrassing and I'm bringing them all in, and I'm going to start working through them just to embarrass you. Now, guess what? Oh, look, you now have new brothers and sisters. Oh, but we don't like them. I know. That's why I'm doing it. And I'm going to bring everybody in together, and we're all going to be one big family, and you're not going to like it very much. And now, all of a sudden, I'm going to slide over and do incredible things to the Gentile people until you get your act together. Ah. But understand, it's always Jew first, then the Gentiles. That's why they're the chosen people. Yeah. All right. It says. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. After what days? After the Messiah does what is necessary. After what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. What does that mean? It means that it's no longer an external code of rules and regulations. It's now an internal heart thing. He now says, I'm changing everything. I'm going to change it in such a powerful way that now I will go internal and give you a conscience that is stricken by conviction of the Holy Spirit. I will go through and it will not be about you just being terrified of me. And that's why you obey me. You're going to obey me because you love me. And it's going to come out of gratitude. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will have a personal relationship with my children. Now that was something the Jews were like, no way. A personal relationship. And it's going to cause a bunch of other things. Look at verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, "Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. What does that mean? It means there's no longer a hierarchy where only a few get to talk to me. I'm going worldwide. When I launch this new covenant, it will no longer be, Hey, I need a special little priest guy to figure out everything for me. Guess what? You talk to me. You talk to me directly. I'll engage with you right here, right now. I will talk to you in your bedroom when it's all quiet. I will talk to you through my word. I will talk to you in the car. You do not need some other special secret channels in order to get to me. Here's the tr- great truth about this. Do you realize, and it'll sound almost silly talking about it in this church, but do you realize when you go home, you don't need me at all? I mean, amen. Now I get an amen. <laughs> I know that was supposed to be encouraging. <laughs> that's the power. I mean that's the deal. You don't need some some holy guy type thing or some mediator here on earth to get your prayers there. You go direct. You don't have to have me around. You don't have to have church. It doesn't only have to happen here. Your worship is just as legit at home as it is here. Why do we come here? Because we need each other. Because we need to grow. He didn't say that we don't need other people to guide us and lead us. He said you don't need someone else to be your only primary channel to God. It is not about the select few. Now it is from the least to the greatest Everybody has a chance to engage with God. That's pretty awesome. It says, why can all this happen? Verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. Why can he do that? Because Jesus Christ vacuumed under the rug and took the sin away. Because Jesus Christ made it so this could be possible. We no longer need the holy mediators because Jesus Christ cleansed us from our sins. That's extraordinary. He finishes up by saying this. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. He nullifies it. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old, that's ready to vanish away. How ironic is it that within a few years after he wrote those words was A.D. 70 and the temple was destroyed by the Romans. And the whole entire old covenant way of doing things with priests and sacrifices and Levites Was wiped off the face of the earth. Accident? No. Pretty planned. Now. In my opinion. This is where we shift. Into the most powerful part. Of today's service. Because. Listen to this. God's connection with his creation. Especially his children is incredibly intimate and personal it is a different personal than what you want you go i want to be able to talk to god and hear him talk back to me that will happen not right now but he is communicating to you he is imminently near he is close to you and he has a message for you he wants to share with you something and here's the thing as a pastor it kills my heart That every week, week in, week out, I'm talking about the incredible blessings of being a child of God, and not all of us are. That's not okay with me. What I'm supposed to go on and on about how amazing it is that there's an internal force that's driving the garbage out and driving you towards the Lord, that I keep saying, you know what, when your prayers are given, they're immediately heard and answered by your Father What if there are some of us that feel like outsiders? What if you don't have Jesus as your Lord and Savior? What if you've never gone to that place where you threw up the white flag and surrendered and said, God, I'm done. If you haven't done that, then you're constantly going, man, I wish I had that too. That's what we're doing today. Because here's how it's going to work. There are some of you that God has been tapping you on the heart for weeks You're like, I wonder, uh, maybe it's the time, maybe it's the time. Guess what? It's the time. And I'm going to be very honest with you. I've never manipulated you. I've never tried to mess with your head. I've never tried to guilt you. I'm going to be very honest with you. Here's the truth. If Jesus isn't covering your sin, you still have it. And that's not going to go well. That separation you feel from God is legit. Because you are not with him. The Bible is very clear that not all are children of God in the same way. I understand God made you. But being his child is different. If you need to be adopted by God, if you need to be born again, if you need to start over, if you need to be cleansed of your sins, if you need to be forgiven... If you need to have grace shower down to where you can look into your past and smile, because though that's who you used to be, Jesus covered that. I'm going to have you in a moment get out of your seat and you're going to walk up here. Why? I'm going to have everybody have their eyes closed, so what's the point? Am I trying to embarrass you? No. Here's why you're going to come up here. Because if you stay seated, in your chair, when you get home, you're going to mess with your own mind and think it's not legitimate. If you get out of your seat and you walk all the way up here, you just did something that you don't want to do. Why? Because you had to. That's why. Then when you're up here, I'm going to invite some special people to come up and they're going to gather around and pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. So let's do this. We also have a time where we're going to be able to restore our relationships for those of us that do call ourselves believers. We'll have that time. But first, let's focus on our friends who need Jesus for the first time, yeah? Bow your heads and close your eyes. If you need cleansing of sin in your life, I want you to get out of your seat and I want you to come up here right now. I want you to sit on the steps. I want you to kneel on the steps, whatever you want to do. But you sit down on the steps up here with me. Get out of your seat. I know there's a whole bunch of you. And I will not, as a pastor, be peaceful going forward until you're safe. Until you are made holy in the eyes of God. come on up here because Jesus Christ loves you so much. He has been whispering to you over and over and over about how he wants to heal you. He died because he cannot stand the idea that you would not live. And so he is telling you, I love you so desperately. Please allow me to heal you. Please allow me to cover you. Anybody else? Get up here. Who else? Come on up and sit right up here. Hang out with me. That's right. All right. There are a lot of us up here. Anyone else? want to come up. You join us. Because we're calling it right here, right now. What we are going to do is if you are a leader, part of the prayer team, part of our staff, or a close friend... And you are a believer. I want you to come up here and lay your hands on our friends right here. Why? Because we're family. That's why. I want you to gather around them. Let them know that they are loved. Let them know that they are cared about. Make sure that you spread out over all of them. Nobody gets left out from being prayed for. We are going to intercede ferociously for you because you are loved by God. We care about you. There's a bunch more on this side as well. You can come up on stage and go come around the back side of things. So those of you that have come up here to receive Jesus Christ, sitting on these steps, I'm going to pray for you. I want in your heart you agree with me. If you're ready to own your sin and you know you're done. With your life you are handing it over to jesus. Let us pray heavenly father We cry out for your salvation. We admit lord. We are at the end of ourselves. We are done We no longer want to do it our way. We want to do it your way. Please rescue us and save us The lord we are wrong. We know we're wrong But we want to be right. We want to be with you. We want to have you do what we cannot do so we lay our lives before you and we ask that you consume us. We ask that you carry us up into you. We ask that you start a new life that you with by the blood of Jesus Christ, it washes all our sin that we've done, all the sin that we're right in the middle of and all the sin that we're moving forward into. Would you make us different? We are not being saved because we are good. We're not good. Lord, we're bad. But we want to be right. We want to be holy, cleanse us by your power, change us, renew us and make us whole and healthy. Lord, allow us to look around our lives and there is no shame, there is no guilt because you've cleansed it all and that we now run after you out of gratitude and love and joy and peace and that our hearts are light and that our shoulders are light can breathe easy and lift up, and there is brightness to our eyes. God, heal us. Save us. According to your word. According to our Savior. In Jesus' name. Stay here. Those of you that are believers that know you need to come up and talk to the Lord, I want to pray for you too. You come up here. Get out of your seat and come up here. Why? Because you should be living a different way, and you're not. And God's been convicting you on that over and over. If you need cleansing and healing, get over here. Come up with us. Join us. We're all up here praying together. you got a whole family waiting for you up here. Come on up. Come on up and gather with us. There's plenty of room. We want this altar to be packed. Why? Because this is where we're finding cleansing. That's why. One of the most amazing things about the idea of confession. The Bible says that if we confess our sins one to another, we are healed. The Bible says that if we confess our sins to the Lord, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's what's so amazing. Also, remember there's sides of the altar if you need the side and you don't want to be packed up in the back. It's over here on the side, your right-hand side. What's so amazing is that I'm about to tell you what the Bible says, and that is Jesus is able. He's able to cleanse you. He's able to change you. He's able to heal you. And so, anyone else? Is that it? All right, then I'm going to assume that anyone that has remained seated is in one of two places. Either right now, you are good with the Lord, and you're thankful and peaceful. Or two... You're still trying to sort stuff out. So here's what I need from everybody seated. I want you to intensely intercede for your brothers and sisters that just walked up here. Because they need your backup. So when I pray, I want you with all your ferocity inside your heart to pray for them. That they might be cleansed, forgiven, and whole ready to go let's do this heavenly father those of us that have walked up here have walked up in an act of humility we are not trying to be prideful we are not trying to admit that we are something that we are not we're trying to be open and honest before you we're trying to be clear and authentic and genuine lord we have garbage in our lives we have anger we have sin we have lust we have all kinds of issues we are all sort of messed up and yes jesus we're your kids But we've been playing around in the world and we got mud all over us and we need to be cleansed today Your word says jesus that you have a fresh shower of grace That can pour over us right here right now Lord may no one who has walked up here in an act of repentance in an act Of humility walk out of this room without feeling light Because jesus you said that your yoke is easy and your burden is light We want to do it your way. We're tired of all the complication and the drama that we put into our lives. And we ask that you free us and rescue us. We are sorry, Jesus. We're sorry for what we are doing. We're sorry for what we keep planning on doing. We're sorry for what we've allowed ourselves to become. You have made us born again. And we continue to soil the new man. Cleanse us free us and make us whole. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.